I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and open to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1. <laughs> Today's topic is creation. And what I'm going to do is read up to the first day of creation, and they, then day 6 and 7 of creation from the book of Genesis, just so we have God's word in our ears and in our hearts as we begin. And as is our custom now here, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 1, starting at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. The first day. Now to verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of, the, of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, please be seated as we pray. We want your, your word to shape our thinking on this collectively. We want to bow our knee to your word and, and hear what you have to say. I pray that that's what would happen today and that the beauty of what you have done would capture our heart even as we look at some of the details of it. In Christ's, in Christ's name, amen. So what does the Bible teach about how the world came into existence? I remember being in grade 7 and uh, getting pamphlets 
in the mail that talked about uh, some, some of the reasons for creation and some of the critiques of an evolutionary perspective of the world. I can even remember one picture of a fossilized fish that was in one of those pamphlets. I remember getting into high school and getting in debates with my science teachers, defending the biblical view of creation over against their evolutionary uh, perspective. I remember going to university, and I took a course in university called Biology and the Human Condition. And one of the main sections of the course was looking at some of the common critiques of evolution and addressing them. I remember when Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, hit the shelves and launched the intelligent design movement. I remember listening to people who held to a scientific uh, perspective and therefore, I felt, were kind of massaging the scriptures to try and fit what they thought science taught and being uncomfortable with that. But I also remember hearing people who were creation scientists doing what felt to me like twisting the scriptures to fit their scientific or their uh, their existing framework and to make it kind of a, a science textbook and being equally uncomfortable. And one of the things that I concluded is this. We cannot import our pre-existing framework into the text of Scripture, be it evolutionary or creationist or anywhere in between. We must allow the text to stand on its own merits. And it's with that conviction that we approach thinking about this. But where does that leave us? Genesis 1 and 2 are notorious for many difficult interpretive issues within them. So you think of just the fact that there's different genres at work within Genesis 1 and 2. You can think of how there's this uh, initial account in chapter 1 up through 2, 3, and then after that, uh, another account, and, and clearly a break in the text between those two. And how, how do we grapple with that? You can, you can think about the fact that on day 7, there wasn't that refrain of there was mourning. And there was evening, a point the author of Hebrews draws out. You can think about the fact that, that uh, there's this, this correspondence between day one of creation and day four, day two and day five, day three and day six, and there's a beautiful symmetry there. There's, there's complex things going on in these first two chapters of Genesis. And that has meant from the very earliest days, there have been debates within Christianity over what exactly is going on in those two chapters predating Darwin and his origin of species. You had someone like Aquinas debating exactly what was going on. And even if you go all the way back to the third and fourth centuries, some of the earliest Christian writing we have, you have people like Origen and Augustine debating exactly what these passages mean. So what do we do? Do we just throw up our hands and say, see, Christians have disagreed on these things through the centuries, so why are we... Uh, trying to figure these things out? Well, the reality is, though there are some things that Christians through the centuries have disagreed on, there are certain things that most Christians through the centuries 
and across cultures have agreed upon because the Bible as a whole speaks with great clarity on certain things. You see, throughout the rest of Scripture, after Genesis 1 and 2, the rest of the Scripture actually comments on Genesis 1 and 2. And when the rest of the Bible gives a commentary on Genesis 1 and 2, that interpretation, that perspective, is normative for us. That is to say, when the Bible holds an interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, that's the interpretation we're going to take. So what I want to go through are just four basic truths that the rest of the scriptures affirm about Genesis 1 and 2. We're not going to untangle all the different details of Genesis 1 and 2. And if that's what you're hoping for today, someday I'll preach through Genesis and we'll do that. But today we're just going to look at what the rest of the scriptures affirm about Genesis 1 and 2 and see where we can have some points of agreement and clarity. So we believe that we can stand with Christians through the centuries and affirm four clear teachings of the Bible on creation, and I want to walk through each one of them. The first is this. God created the world out of nothing. God created the world out of nothing. Now, this actually is one that almost no debate over. It's hard to misread Genesis 1, 1, that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. That's pretty all-encompassing. John 1, 3 says that of, of Jesus, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And this even expands even to the spiritual realm. It's not just material things that God made. So you might remember back when we were preaching through Colossians. And Colossians 1.16 says of Jesus, By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It's just three different passages. We can go to a lot of others. But it's clear from the Bible that God created the world out of nothing. Now, the second thing that we want to affirm is this. Adam and Eve are historic people, the special creation of God, the literal parents of all humanity. Adam and Eve are historic people, the special creation of God, the literal parents of humanity. Now, to see Adam as a historic figure who's, who's the uh, father of all, uh, all of creation, uh, that becomes clear just as you read through Genesis. Because in Genesis 5, Moses gives a genealogy and genealogies are very important in Genesis. And he lists Adam at the top of that genealogy. But Luke, in Luke chapter 3, does the same thing when he gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Again, a literal historic genealogy that's going back, tracing the lineage of Jesus. And he traces it back to Adam, the historic father of all humanity. Moreover... 
If you look at the account of creation, of God's creation of Adam and Eve, in a special way, in a certain order, Adam first and Eve, that historic account is affirmed by Paul in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. He appeals to the order of creation in establishing certain things about how the church is to function. So he's appealing to the historical truth of what happened in Genesis 2 and drawing some implications from that. But more foundational than all of this is Romans 5.17. So I want you to turn there. It's on page 942 if you're using the Pew Bible. Romans 5.17. This is the passage I preached through uh, for Easter Sunday. So you might remember that. Verse 17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, of course this in its context is referring to Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I don't have time to explain the whole passage, especially since I did that just a couple weeks ago. But it's clear that's what's going on here is, is Paul and the, and the author of, or the perspective of Romans is saying, look, there is one man and it's through him that all of us have inherited this fallenness. He is, he is the leader of humanity. It's through him that this mess came about. And it's through one man, Jesus Christ, that there's a solution to all of this. From the, from the perspective of Romans, we cannot call Christ our Savior or the Savior of all humanity unless we call Adam the father of all humanity. If Adam was not our literal parent, Christ cannot be our Savior. 1 Corinthians 15.22 affirms the same thing. Is If, as in Adam, all died... Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. So, with Paul, with Luke, with Moses, we affirm that Adam and Eve are historic people, the special creation of God, the literal parents of all humanity. Which leads to the fourth affirmation. And that, there w- that's, that is this. There was no sin. Sorry, this is the third affirmation. I miscounted. You guys are taking your notes. You're like, fourth? What was the other one? <laughs> the third. There was no sin or death prior to Adam's sin. There was no sin or death prior to Adam's sin. In Genesis 2, God takes Adam and he says to him, you may eat from any tree in the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Of course, Adam eats of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
He doesn't drop dead at that moment. Instead, as Romans 5, 14 and 17 explain it, the reign of death set in over him as his body began to decay and age, Eve, his progeny, and as Roman 8 says, all of creation at that point was subject to decay. So death and sin came into the world as a result of Adam's sin. You know, we can, uh, if you think of, if you think of some of the debates we could have about Genesis 1 and 2 and little things, you know, they don't have a, a massive implication over, over all of Scripture. But when we start to look at these three truths, particularly the last one and this one, it's like a sweater where, where you take one string and you start pulling on it. And if you start pulling on that string, the whole thing unravels. The redemptive storyline of the Bible the very core essence of the message of Christianity begins with a historic Adam who is the father who brought sin into the whole world and passed his sin on to all of us because we are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And because of that, Christ comes as the second man. At one point, even the scriptures call him the second Adam. He comes and undoes all the problems that Adam brought. He, sin brought or Adam's sin brought the curse, the pall over humanity. Christ's blood is the antidote that breaks us free from that bondage. You start pulling at, at those truths about Adam and the whole thing unravels. We have to hold to it. The fourth point that we need to affirm is that God created the world in six days as a pattern for our seven-day work week. So I just want to read, uh, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but from Exodus 20. Sorry, I should have had it bookmarked here. Here we go. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh, your God. On it you should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner that's within your gates. And then it says this. For in six days... Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the Bible's saying is, the reason God went about doing creation in a six-day sort of way with a seventh day of rest wasn't arbitrary. It's not just a poetic device. What's going on here is a pattern that God is actually laying out for humanity to follow. And so we need to affirm that God's design in creating the world in six days is a pattern that he wished to establish for us and our seven-day work week. 
So those are our four truths. If you put those four truths together, though, they preclude an evolutionary explanation for the origin of the world. Let me repeat that differently. There is no way to reconcile what the whole Bible affirms about creation and hold to the evolutionary hypothesis. So where does that leave us? Are science and the Bible at odds with one another? Are we left to choose between religion and science? Between faith and reason? Between doctrine and facts? I don't believe so. And I just want to share two of the comments that have, I want to share two comments of things that have been most helpful for me in resolving this tension. And I hope they're helpful for you. The first thing is to keep in mind that evolution and even the Big Bang are theories. And any reputable scientist will be quick to point out that they are working theories. They're a hypothesis. The, the consensus of the scientific community is that it's the best explanation for the origin of the world. And there are mountains of evidence in support of those things. But it is a hypothesis. And there are some major holes in the hypothesis. It's a working hypothesis, and any grand hypothesis within science has holes in it that people are working on, and, and there are some in evolution. Now, what's happened is from the very beginning, when Darwin first put forward his ideas that began to go, gain momentum, Christians and Bible-believing Christians attacked that theory. And so from the very beginning, the nature of the interaction between uh, the theory of evolution and a creationist view, they've been at odds with one another and they become politicized. And so what happens is, is in reaction, I think, to some of uh, we Christians, you know, trying to always poke holes in evolution, things like that, the, the many in the scientific community have started to become apologists for evolution and try and skirt or hide some of the holes to teach it almost as if it's indisputable fact instead of a working theory that gives an explanation to the facts they're looking at. One such major hole was exposed when Michael Behe published his book, Darwin's Black Box. In it, he puts forward this concept of irreducible complexity. That is, there are certain things like uh, the blood's uh, clotting reaction or the eyeball or things like this that, that at a molecular biological level are so complex that the evolutionary hypothesis can't explain them. See, evolution says that things are selected based on them being advantageous to that species or to, to the development of that species. So if it's advantageous to you, you have a better chance of survival. And so 
those traits are, are chosen or selected in the natural process. Well, what goes on at these, these complex things is there's several different comp components and none of them are beneficial to the species apart from interworking with the others. This concept showed one of the gaping holes in the evolutionary hypothesis. The, the, the startling thing is that molecular biologists, well before Behe's book, acknowledged this problem and acknowledged that it was something they needed to find a solution to. But again, some parts of the scientific, scientific community are so guarded about the holes because of the politicized nature of things that it wasn't brought to light. There's other holes too, like if you look at the fossil record, you won't find the fossil record reflecting the development from uh, simple, uh, non-complex organisms to more complex organisms. Or there's scientific community still hasn't been able to show movement. They, everyone agrees that there's what's called microevolution, that within a species, things develop and change to adapt to their situations. But the scientific community has not been able to show any example of moving from one species to another the development that's, that's dependent on the macroevolution idea. I don't say this because I think that scientists need to abandon their evolutionary theory because of these holes. I just say them because I don't want us to think that just because it's the consensus of the scientific community that there aren't weaknesses in the theory. I want, I want us not to be duped by the increasingly politicized naturalist agenda that wanna, wants us to believe that evolution is a proven fact. That's one comment that's been helpful for me. The other is to remember the difference between science as a tool and naturalism as a worldview. The difference between science as a tool and naturalism as a worldview. Let me explain what I mean. Science is a tool that is one way of looking at the world around us. It's based on this. I make observations. I develop a testable explanation for the things I'm observing. And then through further observation, be that through experiments or whatever else, I test my testable explanation. And we go on in this process. It's a wonderful tool. I think it's fantastic. We've learned so much as a result of this tool. Now, the naturalistic worldview says that science isn't just one tool for learning about our world, but that it is the tool. In other words, if science doesn't affirm it or prove it, I can't affirm it or prove it. That is, it's not just relegated as one approach to looking at the world, but it is the only way, the only perspective we need in understanding our world. And as Christians, we reject the naturalistic worldview. We believe there is a God. We believe that there is such a thing as good and evil in this world. We believe that when two people fall in love, it's more than just a chemical reaction 
that evolutionary selection has predisposed them to do because it's good for the propagation of the species. We believe there's something more profound going on. We, with most people who have embraced science through the centuries, reject a naturalistic worldview while still affirming science as a useful tool. And so it's important to keep this in mind because I believe that to do good science, talking about the tool here, you have to preclude the idea of the supernatural. Now, I'm not saying you can't be a person of faith and do science, but in your actual hypotheses and developing them, they have to be testable. And if they're testable, you can't assume that there's a supernatural explanation for it. Let, let me explain what I mean. Let's say a geyser pops up in downtown Georgetown. And we call on the best scientist to come and explain it. And he goes and looks at it. And after about 15 minutes of looking at it, he says, God did it. We'd all say, amen, that's true. Finally, someone's acknowledging that. But we'd say, get to work and use the tools of science to see if there is any natural cause to this. Did God just plop down a geyser? Or, or as you do your observations and test those things, were there some things that were going on in the Earth's crust that might have led to this, right? So in order to do their science and to use that tool, part of the nature of the tool is you don't just default to a God-did-it explanation, but you search for an explanation that's a natural explanation within the laws of nature that can be tested and interacted over. Now, that means that I think pro-evolution Christians who hold to science, because science says evolution is so, I must, I'm compelled by that and must reject the scriptures or at least try and figure out some way to make the scriptures say what I want them to say, I find fault with. Because I don't think, yes, I, I agree. I agree, science has done good work and this is where they're leading. But I don't think that's the final answer as we think about the origin of the world. I think there's other perspectives and particularly the infallible word of God that brings perspective here. But similarly, sometimes creation scientists seem to play into the same error. They try and commandeer science to prove, to say science proves scripture. And I think they fall into the very same error, as if they're buying into, so to speak, a naturalistic worldview. If, if science doesn't confirm it, then it isn't true. Can we just let science be the tool that it's established to be and allow scriptures to be another perspective, and I'd say the authoritative perspective that we bring to these things? In my, in my preparation, I came across this fantastic quote. It says, rather than attempt to fix science, to have it produce the right answer in every case, we must instead be willing to demote it to its proper role as but one of many available ways of knowing. At the end of the day, it will not be a theistic science we need, but a science employed by theists. Not a science without limits, but an end to limitless faith in science.
It was written by a doctoral candidate at Princeton in string theory named John Pearson in an unpublished paper called Gauging the God Powers. It's a phenomenal paper. The best thing I've ever read on any of this. And he gave me special permission. I'm not allowed to distribute it, but I can make it available to people who might be interested. So at the welcome table, there's a few copies of it. After, in his approach, he, he critiques some of the approach of creation scientists and the uh, intelligent design crowd. And then he writes these words to his fellow evangelicals. Listen to what he says. Even for those who hold to the authority of Scripture, the issue of evolution is rarely an easy one. It is a difficult thing in a scientific age to openly question so many experts and so much corroborating evidence. It has rarely seemed so backward and so untenable to believe in a creation story so unapologetically miraculous. Weighed down by doubt, we read and reread those defeatingly simple first verses of Genesis, combing them for abstract truth, compatible, compatible truth, anything we might cling to and affirm, only to have them resist and challenge us, seemingly unwilling to re relinquish their unthinkable claims. And then he writes, but it has ever been this way. We have forgotten, perhaps, that in its own day, the bodily resurrection was not only a ludicrous, but an intellectually naive claim. And yet it was the apostles and evangelists who tell us that the claims of Christianity, outlandish, credulous, foolish even, are, for all that, the very promise of life. Christians, their own scriptures to them, do not believe in a God of confusion or a truth that he does not own. And yet, because those same scriptures instruct them to walk by faith and not by sight, the frailty of their eyes must often become the occasion for their trust. It is in these times that God, who does not abandon them, asks first and foremost, that they follow him. Not because he's promised to dispel all their confusion, but because they know the faithfulness of the one who leads them on. We are a people together in this room because of this table right here who believe in the miraculous. We believe in the supernatural. We believe that God has intervened in history through his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that God-man went to the cross and bore our sins and rose from the dead, freeing us from the bondage in our own heart to sin. We are people who affirm the miraculous accounts of what the scriptures say God is doing in this world, in creation and in the new creation that Christ brings. Let us pray. Father, 
I know that these topics are challenging to us. They're things that we must wrestle with. But I pray that we'd be able to see the frailty of our own eyes. And seeing that would allow us the occasion to walk by faith and to affirm what we see here in the scriptures and to glory in you. The God of all creation has made all these things so beautifully. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.